I don't like to be alone. I don't know about you, but me personally, I don't like to be alone. In fact, if I'm going somewhere or if I've got to do something, I'd like to take somebody with me for the ride. Amen? I'd li I like to have a traveling buddy. I like to be around people. I enjoy comp the company. I love being around family and friends. And there is nothing that can cheer me up faster than some company and fellowship. And anybody knows me knows that this is true. When God created the heaven and the earth, you, re you recall the seven days of creation, there was a real rhythm to the creation. You have these six days, and, and there is a real rhythm to the creation. As you read Genesis chapter 1, you, get, you pick up on this rhythm. And one of the aspects of the rhythm is that you have God speaking, you have God creating something on each particular day, and at the conclusion of that particular creation, that particular aspect of the creation, the Lord gave a commentary about it, and he said it is good. This is good. He created the seas and the dry land, and he said it, it is good. He created the lights in the sky, and he said it, it's good. He created the, the plants and all the animals and all the sea creatures and the birds of the air, and he said, it is good. He created man, and he said, it is good, and he placed man in the Garden of Eden, and then he said, it's not good. It's not good that man should be alone. And so you see this rhythm of it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's not good. What's not good? It's not good that man should be alone. God didn't want man to be alone. He didn't create man kind to be alone. There are those times that we do like to be left alone. Every once in a while we'll say, at least leave me alone. <laughs> But for the most part, we like to be with other people. Now with more than 7 billion, I guess the number is, 7 billion people upon the face of the earth and growing every day, loneliness could not be more of a problem. In fact, if you talk to people in the field, loneliness is one of the greatest problems in the world today. There are people everywhere, yet more people are lonely than ever before. We have more ways to connect with people than at any other time in history, but people are lonelier than ever before. Technology has advanced, and you really don't even leave, need to leave the four walls of your house. If you want to be totally alone, you can be alone. And you can literally live within the four walls of your residence and never leave. You can work at home, you can bank at home, shop at home, and have all your food brought directly to your doorstep. You can conduct all your relationships through social media platforms. I mean, literally, you don't ever need to be with anyone or go anywhere. And then you can run right out into the midst of the crowd and feel just as lonely as you were sitting in a room by yourself. 
That's kind of a tragedy, actually, to, to be around and to, be, to have so many people around and yet to feel lonely. The late, great evangelist Billy Graham once said that loneliness is the greatest problem facing humanity today. The late Mother Teresa of Calcutta described it as the heart hunger and claims it is easier to relieve material poverty than this poverty of the soul. And loneliness is not selective about who it chooses as its victims. Albert Einstein once wrote to a friend describing his inner hurts, and I quote, it is strange to be known so universally and yet to be so lonely. So what is God's answer to loneliness? God's answer to loneliness is true Christian fellowship. The whole mystery of our existence in the gospel is that God has set out to gather. This is what, what is the mystery of the whole world, the mystery of the gospel. It is that God has set out to form a family. God is about family and he's about relationship and he's about being in relationship. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were called the children of Israel, right? In the New Testament, men and women are called sons and daughters of God. Paul tells us in Galatians that we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. And so what can you make of all this that God has set out to form a family? A family. And that's what it is. The kingdom of God is none other than a family. The church of Jesus Christ is none other than a family. God has not set out to form a corporation. He has not set out to form a club or a society. He has set out to form a family. The book of Acts provides a picture of true Christian fellowship. The church of Jesus Christ, really, in, in, in this setting that we're going to look at in Acts chapter 2, you, you may even have this as a kind of a heading of the paragraph there. It may even say, the fellowship of believers. The fellowship of believers. Jesus Christ's church is a fellowship of believers. Tolkien had the fellowship of the ring, and Jesus has the fellowship of believers in him. Amen? So here we're going to take a look at this idea of being a person of fellowship and that we need to be committed to it. It needs to be a commitment in our lives. So we're looking at a couple of points tonight. The first point, if you're taking notes there on your, on your sheet, is this. Commit to regular worship. Let's pick it up. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says this, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The first thing that you must do to be a person of fellowship is to commit to regular worship. And it's a discipline. It's a discipline. It's a spiritual discipline. The discipline of regular worship, of regular fellowship with the believers. The early Christian believers were committed to regular worship together. And regular worship 
is a very important part to your life as a believer. In fact, it's very critical. The early Christians were committed to, uh, in fact, actually, I was going to say they were committed to regular worship, but they weren't just committed. The text here says that they were, that they continued steadfastly in this. They continued steadfastly. It wasn't just kind of a, say, hey, I'm going to do this or whatever, or hey, this is a good idea, or maybe I'll pop by. You know, <laughs> it was really something that says they continued steadfastly in this idea of the fellowship of the believers. And of course, the believers continued steadfastly in a, in a couple, in a few activities that were very important to the fellowship in terms of what the fellowship of believers does when we gather together. There are some things that we do within the fellowship, but one of the, the big things is actually being a fellowship, actually being in fellowship, and continued, continuing steadfastly in it. The word for steadfastly there in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 is actually a word, proskoterio, and it means this, to, to, to be steadfastly attentive unto, to give unremitting care to a thing, to continue all the time in a place, to persevere and not faint, to, to show oneself courageous for, to be in constant readiness for one to wait on constantly. And I think you can gather there that you can get the sense of the word that this is something to, to not even faint for it, to, to, to continue uh, without fainting in, in, a, in a particular direction. It actually carries the idea of a steadfast, single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. And one of the, I think one of the greatest things that someone who says, I want to follow Jesus in my life, one of the greatest commitments that they can have in their life is a commitment to fellowship and regular worship with the saints, with the, the body of believers. It's, it's an important thing. And this is one of those things that, like, you know, if you were going to continue, continue steadfastly in, in, in just a couple of things, I mean, there's a bunch of things that we could all commit to, right? I mean, there's a bunch of things we could go to a fair, you know, uh, a fair, uh, you know, not a fair like a, like a fairgrounds type of thing, but I mean like, you know, like a job fair, but a things to do fair, a things to be committed to fair. Okay, you following me? If we went to one of those, it'd, there'd be a booth, there'd be a thousand booths, there'd be a million booths. Well, let's go check out this, you know, how to bake cupcakes and how to do this or how to make, you know, flowers out of cut grass or something. I don't know. I mean, there's a million and one things that you could be committed to. And as a believer of Christ, I think that, the, that the, one of the greatest things, one of the most important things is to be committed to regular worship and the fellowship of the believers. The first thing we're, we're told that the early Christians, believers were committed to in their regular worship is the apostles' doctrine. It says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. What is the apostles' doctrine? Well, the word doctrine is a Greek word that means, it's the Greek word didache, and it actually means teaching, uh, it, it, or that which is taught. What was it that the apostles were teaching, or what was it that was taught? Well, if you read the book of Acts, you quickly discover that it was the word of God. They continued steadfastly to the apostles' doctrine, and you realized very quickly that it was the word of God that they were committed to teaching. In fact, if you get to chapter 6, 
You get all the way to chapter 6 and you realize that there's a problem in the church in Jerusalem, that there's this dispute happening between the the Jew, the 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 uh, the widows, the widows that you know you had the, the the Jewish widows, and then you had the Hellenistic widows, the Greek widows, right, the Gentile widows, and there was a dispute over how the bread would be distributed to these widows, and the apostles came and they said, this is how they handled it. They said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables, in order to handle this. This is an important thing, but for us as apostles, it wouldn't be right. We, we need to be continued, continuing steadfastly in, in, in being ready to teach the word. And so that's where they appointed uh, deacons in the church and, and men that were raised up. And, and, and of course, you had deaconesses, and the, there is the word de, uh, the, you know, the, the idea of a, a female servant, a female person that would, that would carry that. And I believe, and Pastor Chuck actually taught this, that, that, that that's the calling of every Christian. You know, there, there's certain streams of, of churches that, you know, you had a select group of people that were like, you know, these are the deacons of the church. And, you know, if, if, you, if you read, um, really, we all need to aspire to the office of deacon. We all need to be that, those people that, you know, take a look at the qualifications. That's where you're headed. That's where you need to be headed. Read, read Timothy. And the qualifications for deacon, and that's the thing that you need to you need to realize that that's probably the standard that you need to be looking at um, for your life. Don't hold yourself to the lowest common denominator. Don't hold yourself to the lowest bar. We're, we need to realize we're all called to serve in the body of Christ. And so, they appointed the deacons and they handled it. In fact, you know that was a verse of scripture that um, when I went to Bible college, I. Uh, I worked at the Olive Garden. I, I remember the day that I got my job at the Olive Garden. Back in 1988, it was October 10th. It was a red letter date in the history of, I guess, Charles Nestor II, because 10-10-88 was the day that I got my job at Olive Garden in Lakeland back when Olive Garden was a brand new restaurant and it didn't matter what day of the week it was, there was an hour and a half wait every night of the week to get a table at the Olive Garden. And then 2010, 10, 10, 10 was the actual date that I released my book. So I don't know about what happened, you know, maybe something will happen in the future on 10, 10. Um, but anyways, when I went to finish up my degree at Southeastern and I had worked Four years at the Olive Garden. I remember that I submitted my resignation letter to the Olive Garden, and I thanked them for the opportunity and that the job had helped me uh, put myself through Bible college and everything. And so thank you so much for it, and uh, um, this, is, this letter will serve as my resignation. Sincerely, Charles Nestor II, P.S., Acts chapter 6, verse 2. It would not be right for me to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. <laughs> <laughs> so they were committed to the word of God and uh, and the word of God is 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 
what the, the church is committed to. It's the, it's the, it's the thing that kind of, you know, there's, there's a couple things that kind of bind us together in the body of believers. You know, there's, there's, uh, there's the word of God, there's the spirit of God. I mean, you can look at if we're living stones and we're being fitted together, you could almost look at that aspect of things as kind of like the, you know, the, the mortar or the thin set or whatever, you know, that's this kind of like putting the stones together. What is it that, that binds us together? It's the word of God. It's the directive of God. It's the, it's the teaching of, of God uh, that, that needs to be brought to bear upon our lives. And so, so it's, it's, an, it's important. It's the word of God that will convict a sinner uh, to, to realize their need of a savior and to be brought into repentance and salvation. It's the word of God that thoroughly equips the believer for service in the church and to be brought up into the, to the perfect image, the, the perfection of the head who is Christ Jesus. And that's the theme of Acts chapter two, or Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, and so, so that we would be grounded in the word of God. In another place, Paul talks about the church being the, the, the pillar and ground of the truth. And that's if we're going to be the pillar and ground of the truth, we need to be a church to, gathering together as we do. Amen. I'm speaking to the choir, speaking to the, you know, the, the, you know, the choir here tonight of those that gather together to be bound together in the word of God. Now, there's an increasing problem in the church um, that I think that, the, that it creates a vulnerability for the church going forward. And it is, uh, it's, it is actually a lack of commitment and steadfast commitment to the word of God, which I believe will, will create a softer, more penetrable um, situation to outside attack because, um, and, and, and here's what it is, and I've run into more and more Christians that I talk to um, just on the street, um, that you will begin to talk to a, a, a particular person, you find out you know, they confess some type of a faith in Christ or a Christianity or whatever, and then you listen to them further, and the more that you listen to them, you, you, you're getting the sense that they have this kind of hodgepodge grab from here and there and all kinds of different philosophies, and you're like, where, where, what, what is this? Where are you getting? I mean, you, Acts over here and Oprah and... Deepak Chopra and, you know, who else, you know, and it's, it's just a hodgepodge of philosophy and it's a real danger because then what ha happens is you end up like the church of Laodicea and the problem with the church of Laodicea is that they literally were having a church and it's the one church of the seven churches of Revelation that Jesus actually uh, addresses as, and you can read it in uh, Revelation chapter three, he says, your church, he says, to, 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 the, to, to your church of, of the Laodiceans. And, and in other words, this isn't even my church. In fact, if you look at the geography of where Jesus is in the letter, he's literally on the outside of the church, standing at the door, knocking, saying, hey, can't, let me back in. Let me back into the church. I want, I'm, 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 I'm really like, you know, what's this whole thing supposed to be about here? And he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and be with him and what? Dine with him, right? There you have the fellowship. So here it is, Jesus wanting to fellowship with the church. And here you have a church where Jesus is literally on the outside of the fellowship. 
And that's probably, I don't know. I don't know what the most dangerous position to be in, but that's one of them, probably. But at least you got Jesus knocking on the door. Amen? <laughs> Revelation 3.20. He, he's, he's knocking on the door as a perfect gentleman. He doesn't barge through. He doesn't come through with like a battering ram. Behold, I stand at the door with a battering ram. I will break this door down if you don't let me in. No. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I want to have fellowship with you. I want to sit down and have a meal with you. Amen? Uh, so, the problem with not being steadfastly committed to the word is actually becoming a Christian who just is tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And so that you don't know, you can't recognize good teaching, you can't recognize right doctrine, and so that you're grabbing, you're going to and fro, being tossed to and fro according to every wind of doctrine. One of the things that they do in... Um, the FBI, when they're training agents to detect uh, currency, uh, counterfeit, thank you, you knew where I was going with that, counterfeiting, is they spend an awful lot of time actually handling, studying real money so that when you handle something that's not real, that you can recognize it right away. And so the more that you have the real, the authentic, the more that you have the word of God, the more that something, when something else comes in from other, some other wind, it won't ring true in the heart of a believer who has the discernment of the Holy Spirit and who's sitting under the good teaching of the, of the word. Amen? Amen? So we need to have doctrine, right and authoritative teaching from the word of God. And of course, according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and on into chapter 4, you have well, really chapter 3, verse 16, where he says, all scripture is God-breathed and, and profitable for doctrine, reproof, rebuke, and correction, and instruction in righteousness. So we don't have time to go through all that, but that's a, that's a great study, but the, you have the purpose of the word. The next thing that they were steadfastly committed to is the fellowship. They were committed to each other. They were steadfastly committed to, look back at it, verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and prayers. Now, I want to just back up for a second because I want to answer this question. I actually did a series on this years ago where it was actually going to be one message that turned into like 10, I think. And, it, and I asked this question in this message, and this is probably why it turned into a, a long series, is because I came to this verse 42 and it says, and they... Continued, And so I asked this question, who are the they of verse 42? Well, if you read from verse, if you read the whole chapter, you understand who the they is. The they are the people who have come into the church of Jesus Christ when Peter stood up and proclaimed the gospel after the Holy Spirit was given on uh, the day of Pentecost and people received the, 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 the infilling, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the church was born and Peter preached and preached a, an incredible sermon, and it was it was it was one of the greatest moments in uh, in ministry history. Uh, it, it, at least in my opinion, there there are two great moments in ministry history. If I had to choose two, one in the Old Testament, which was where Elijah called down fire from 
heaven, and you know he he mocked the the, the prophets of Baal, and and of course you know the Lord came down with the fire and dried up all the water with the fire and consumed the sacrifice until it was such an incredible display of the power of God until the prophets of Baal actually said. God is Yahweh, God is Yahweh, which actually in the Hebrew would actually have been a form of Elijah. It was Elijah, Elijah, El is God, El is God. It was literally like they were chanting his name, but really they were saying, God is Yahweh. And so that has got to go down as one of the greats. And secondly, in the New Testament, you've got the day of Pentecost when Peter preaches and he gets to the end of the message and the crowd actually says, what do you want us to do? <laughs> so these got to be, the, the, in my book, these are the two great moments. And, uh, you know, because if you're ever preaching and you have the crowd actually say, okay, preacher, what would you like us to do? Okay, here's what you need to do. Repent and be baptized and, and, and the promises for you and, 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 and all the generations to come. So anyway, so who, who are the they? Those that responded to the call that was given in Peter's sermon. The question is for us today, 2,000 years later, are you the they of verse 42? Are you the they? Is that you? Could you, you consider yourself a part of that they? And you say, okay, that, that word, the, the they, the, the fellowship of believers, are you a part of that? And if so, then what is the they committed to? They're steadfastly committed to the apostles' doctrine and to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and of prayers. So they're committed to fellowship in, in the body of Christ, the family of God. And the word is actually koinonia in the Greek. And um, in fact, this was a word back, you know, a few decades ago that was actually became, you know, people talked a lot about fellowship, they talked a lot about koinonia. Um, there were a lot of ministries that were called koinonia. There were a lot of churches that co were called koinonia. And everybody kind of like was like learning about koinonia. And maybe we need to, you know, kind of study up on koinonia again. And it's this fellowship and it's this idea of it's actually, it's actually from the root word that actually is, is common. And it's actually, it's, it's, having, it's having something in common, really. Those that have fellowship have something in common. And what is it that we have in common? In, in the family of God. We all have been sinners that were completely destitute, dead in our sins, and that Jesus Christ saved us and set us free and gave us a destiny of being his sons and daughters. And so we have an amazing commonality in the body of Christ. We can all be totally different. We can be of different races, different cultures, different languages, different socioeconomic levels, um, different levels of education, different interests, different, 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 but we have an amazing commonality, and that is that we have been brought into the family of God by the precious blood of, G of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? So, we, so what church is about, what the fellowship is about, is actually celebrating that commonality. You know, the world actually wants to break us off into groups and segregate us and, 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 and build walls and, and do all this. And what Jesus did, he's, he, he's about 
tearing down the walls of, of segregation. He's about tearing down the walls of separation. There was actually a wall of separation between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, in the outer courts of the temple, Paul actually makes the argument in Galatians that he has torn down the outer wall of separation to where there is neither Jew nor Greek, that we are all, we are all on the same, we are all in, have this in common, that we have come into relationship with Jesus Christ. And this, is something, and this is something that should be on the forefront of our minds when we gather together. Who are we gathering together with and why? Because we've got something in common with all those people that we're going to gather together with tonight or in the morning or wherever it happens to be. And it's a celebration of the, of the, of the, of the fellowship, not of the ring, but of the Lord. Amen? <laughs> so, and, and they were committed to the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread would have included the, the Lord's table, the communion. The, you know, of course, we have that imagery of, you know, he took the bread, the unleavened bread, and he broke it. He gave thanks and he broke it and he gave to them. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. He took the cup and he said, this cup is a new, ta- new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And so we have this breaking of bread. We have this communion. That's why we actually call that communion in that sense. Um, and, and, and sharing that communion, that commonality, that, that relationship that we have with the Lord. But they also ate and broke bread together. Down later in the text, it talks about them eating together in homes, breaking bread, going from house to house, eating bread, right? There's always this idea of breaking bread. And bread is important to fellowship. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. In fact, you know, Calvary Chapel has actually been called Calorie Chapel, you know, because we know how to break bread, right? And, and, uh, but anyways, let me talk to you about bread, this idea of bread, because with um, the, the idea of being in fellowship and being in community with the koinonia, with the fellowship, uh, you could actually take the word companionship. The word companionship, and that, and that, and if we're in fellowship and we're in a community of believers, um, then you could say that we're companions together in the fellowship, right? And the word companion, and and, and I hope you're, if you're married here, I hope you're a companion with your spouse. Amen. That's your number one companion, other than the Lord, and then reaching out to all the other relationships. The word companion is actually broken down with this meaning, and it's actually uh, come from the, from the word uh, common or community, which is actually to share. The idea of fellowship in koinonia is actually sharing something in common. So it's come actually is that the idea of sharing, and pan there is actually bread. And so actually a companion is one that you would share bread with or break bread with. And so the idea here is the, the fellowship, they were committed to the fellowship of believers in the breaking of bread and prayer. And they broke bread. And there's something that happens when you break bread with people. Um, in fact, I, I ran into some churches and went to some uh, pastor's conferences where they really taught, like, don't do anything where you don't, you know, people were like, oh, well, we always have food and whatever, but don't do anything where you don't have food. And it's like, okay, why? Well, because something happens when you break bread. You could, we could stand here and talk and whatever, um, and the minute we sit down at a table together and break bread and have that t- 
type of communion together, if you will, there's a, there's a commonality, there's a sharing, there's a, a, a deepening of the relationship that happens. And we found this out, guys, didn't we? When we started dating, we, we said, hey, would you like to go out and get some bread to that lady? No, we didn't say that. Would you like to go get a pizza? Would you like to get some spaghetti? Or would you like to get some, you know, would you like to go to Bennigan's and get appetizers, right? Yeah, that's what you said. And then you went out and you did it and you ate together. And maybe she was a little shy about eating, but after a while, in front of you, and you were shy, well, maybe you weren't shy, and there's food fumbling out of your mouth or whatever. And, and, um, but after a little while, hey, the walls were bro- broken down, and you were just there eating together, right? And of course, they were committed to prayers, and we talked a lot about the importance of prayer, being committed to prayer, praying together. Um, Jesus said that his house would be a house of prayer, and that's why we want to we wanna always pray. You know, when we gather together, we pray on the way. We pray when we get here. We pray during the service. We pray at the conclusion of the service. We pray after, after the service. You know, one of the great things to see in a church body is that even after the service and after the direction from the stage, that the body is actually just seen like, you know, just praying with one another. That is actually one of the coolest things as a pastor to see, where you just look over and you see like a couple just praying together. You know, somebody like a group, maybe even praying with somebody. What's going on over there? I don't know what's going on over there, but that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing just to see that happening. James 5.16, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And so we've got to be people of prayer. Secondly, how are we doing on time? Five minutes to do the second point, but I think I can do it. (laughs) Commit to real relationship. Commit to real relationship. Let's pick it up back verse 44. He says, now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And so you've got to commit to regular worship and you've got to commit to real relationships. If, you know, you can come into the church now in, in many places, in many churches, and because of the the growth of certain places that you can literally slip in and slip out and really never even commit to, to actual real relationships within the fellowship, within the body of Christ. And I would just say, hey, you know, God doesn't want that for you. God wants you to be plugged in. And I used to say this, especially in smaller churches. I mean, anyone could walk through the doors and be like, you know, right in the center of all of our relationships within like a matter of a couple of weeks, right? You know, and, and I've seen that happen where it's like, hey, hey, you've only been here around here like a couple, two, three weeks, maybe four, six weeks, but it feels like you've been here for a long time, you know, because we've just gotten to know you and, and it's great. But you've got to kind of enter into that type of fellowship. Fellowship doesn't happen by osmosis. Um, some people feel... Um, they wish it would happen by osmosis, you know, but it, 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 it takes, you know, it takes, um, sometimes people don't get involved in true fellowship or real relationship because they're afraid of being vulnerable. And if you're going to be in a relationship, it, it, it involves vulnerability. And, and if 
the reason why people don't feel vulnerable, they feel a need, a feel a, a feeling of not wanting to be vulnerable is because they, there's a fear of some kind. There's a fear of rejection. There's a fear of not being included. There's a fear of, you know, whatever it is, but there's some type of fear. And in the body of Christ, I just want to say it this way, we shouldn't have any of that. It, you know, we should be a place, the body of Christ should be a place where there is no fear because we hopefully have the agape of God and the agape of God casts out all fear. And so if we, if we have the agape of God, how do you know that you're truly worshiping the Lord? Because the agape of God is beginning to abound in your life and overflow in an abounding way. And if we're all worshiping the same God, the Lord Jesus Christ, then the love of God, the agape of God is abounding in an incredible way so that, there, so that it's just like a, it's an environment where fear is just being cast out. And so that the person who feels like maybe I don't want to be vulnerable maybe they'll feel like, hey, maybe I can be vulnerable. Maybe I can open myself up to the fellowship. Fellowship doesn't happen because you attend a service. Fellowship happens really, you know, when we do open up and become vulnerable with one another. Fellowship has to be cultivated relationship has to be cultivated. Fellowship has to be cultivated. You could consider this, and I mentioned this concept of the garden, the garden of Eden. God put man in a garden. Why? Because it, 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 he, he gave them free will, but he also gave them responsibility to cultivate the garden, to tend to the garden. And whatever, whatever garden that you're in, you're in gardens. You're in actually multiple gardens. You have a garden of your home. You have a garden of your marriage. You have a garden of your community. You have a garden of this church. This church is a garden. It's a little mini garden, and it has to be cultivated. And, and in that sense, if, if we don't cultivate it, then there's pockets of chaos within, the, within the, the garden. How was the Christian fellowship being cultivated in the early church? Well, number one, it was a work of the Holy Spirit. Amen? It was all a work of the Holy Spirit. And you have to be open to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And the question is, are you? <laughs> the question is, are you open to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? Are you willing for the Holy Spirit to come into your life and cultivate a desire and a longing for Christian fellowship, true relationship? So that's a good question. As the Holy Spirit was moving in the church and cultivating fellowship and a sense of the family of God, three distinct things began to be apparent in the fellowship. The first thing that you saw happening was generosity. Generosity is a work of the Holy Spirit. And it's the opposite of stingy. Generosity is the opposite of stingy. Now, where you get this here is in verse 44, it says, Now all who, were be who believed were together and had all things in common. Verse 45, And sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now there have been some that have tried to take this particular verse of scripture and make it out to be somehow that the church of Jesus Christ was a communist, that it's a communist manifesto, that this, uh, this commonality was somehow communist. And, that, and I would say, eh, no, wrong. It's not communist, it's commonality and it's a work of the Holy Spirit. Communism is actually a forced under threat of violence from the state to, to spread out things in some type of an equal way, although that never truly works and there's 100 million dead 
from the rise of communism in the 20th century. Um, but what we have here is we don't have anything happening under compulsion or force or dictate. We have a work of the Holy Spirit as it's being given, as it's being put upon people's hearts to, to give, to sell things and to give and to meet needs. And so when needs arose, they were, they were met. And, and I think a key phrase there is that they were distributed as anyone had need, right? As anyone had need. It wasn't just some type of a, kind of a, a dictate or some type of an arbitrary thing or even to, even to some type of preconceived idea of how it might be uh, distributed. First uh, Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, Paul said this, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty and not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. And I remember teaching through uh, Timothy, the Timothys and the pastoral epistles, and I told the congregation, I said, um, well, you might have read that, you might have heard that verse read, command those who are rich in the present age not to be haughty and not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, and yada, yada, yada. Um, and you, you heard that first part of it where it says, command the rich, and you said, well, I'm not rich, and so that, so that verse is not for me. The commandment that Paul advocates there is not for me. And I went through the exercise of actually um, demonstrating to the congregation that every single person sitting and hearing my voice is, by the world's standards, uh, magnitudes of wealth, magnitudes of riches that you have, it, um, that you have been given um, into your life. And so certainly by the world's standards and any standard that has ever existed on the face of the earth, that every single one of you here is wealthy, rich. So we need to hear the admonition there. They were cultivating regular worship. They met together. Here it says um, they met daily. Um, we need to meet regularly. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be under the direction of the, you know, the leadership of the church. You know, you can, you can actually have someone over to your house from the fellowship. You can actually take someone out to dinner or lunch or maybe out for a pie. Take them out and get a peach pie or an apple or apple crumb or something. I don't know. There used to be pie places that you would go and sit. And I remember this when, I, you know, after church, we, after Sunday night church, um, what, what, what were they? Help me out. The, the, you know, where were you? You'd go and there would, you'd walk in and there'd be just like a, um, what was it? Village Inn and, and these types of places, you know, but there was, there was more, you know, especially out on the West Coast, Baker Square and, and um, all these type of places. Anyways, um, I remember going out and having pie. Um, and um, so that's a good thing. So... And it doesn't have to be some expensive thing. Well, I don't, have, I don't have the money to be in fellowship. Well, you know, go over to Publix and go over and ask the baker, like, do you guys have any, you know, day-old pies? <laughs> Where are the discounted pies? I guarantee you can get, walk out of there with an apple pie for a couple of bucks. 
I'm going to run over there. Come up and tell me if you can do it. So Saturday, I want to see if you come up and tell me. Yeah, I went over there. I got a pie. I got a whole pie for two forty-nine. <laughs> Breaking a bread from house to house. They went into each other's houses and broke bread. This means they ate together, they shared together, they ministered to each other's needs. Uh, you know, they, they probably prayed together, shared, you know, from the Lord what was happening. So what happened? What was, what's the conclusion of this type of fellowship and this type of relationship in the body of Christ? The conclusion is verse 47b. 47, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And, and so there was a cultivation that was actually a, a, a work of natural evangelism that was happening. Um, that was actually, you know, in the, I remember when I went to Bible college, and, I'll, and I'm, I'm six minutes over, so. Um, I remember when I was a freshman in Bible college, and one of the classes that, you know, they, they had to take was actually called Evangelistic Work of the Church, right? And um, I remember one of the books that they had us read was, I forget, well, yeah, I just remembered it. It was actually called The Master's Plan of Evangelism. And the main thesis of the book was that you had, in the, in the New Testament, you had this idea of what they, what they brought out in the book, was, which was called an oikos. It was actually a network. It's actually a Greek word that actually means network. It's actually the, the network of relationships that every person already actually has happening in their life. And so what happened was, as people came into the church and they developed this new network, this new fellowship, that when this actually entered into the homes of the people, there was actually, the reason why there was a natural outgrowth of evangelism is because the natural oikos, the natural network that was already present in people's lives, that the gospel was like spilling over onto them, you know, by sheer um, possibly geographic proximity, you know, to the to the relationships, and so you, that's where you had this tremendous growth happening um, in the early church, and so uh, so we need to look for that as certainly a, a something to to be looked for. So um, being a person of fellowship is something that is, I think, one of the most important things that we can do in following Christ.